0: Hello and welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. I'm Tony Clark, your host. And once again, I'm interviewing astrophysicist, Dr. Hugh Ross. Now, today we'll discuss his much-anticipated book, Designed to the Core. In this book, Hugh explains how the most sophisticated scientific instruments reveal exquisite interior designs throughout the universe that are ideally suited for human habitation on Earth here right now. So, Mr. Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, thank you so much for joining us again.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. And, and again, I'm, I'm excited to interview you once again. Um, so the, the brand new book, Designed to the Core. Uh, Hugh, what's, what's your motivation? What was your motivation for writing this book?
1: Well, I've got over 50 books that deal with what's called the anthropic principle. Almost all of them written by astronomers and physicists who are not believers. And what they do is they look at the universe as a whole and they say, we see throughout the universe hundreds of features that must be exquisitely fine-tuned to make possible the existence of life and we human beings in particular. But they typically stop at the level of the universe. What I didn't design to the core is briefly summarize that and say, well, let's actually look at uh, the universe at all different size scales. So I begin with the largest-scale structures, the cosmic web, and then I look at the super galaxy cluster, our galaxy cluster, our local group of galaxies, our Milky Way galaxy. I look at the local arm inside of our galaxy, the local bubble, the local fluff, zoom in on our solar system and talk about how special our star is, our system of planets, uh, our Earth, our Moon, and even dive into the interior structures of the Sun, the Earth, and the Moon, basically making the point no matter what size scale you choose to examine the universe, you're going to find overwhelming scientific evidence, not only that it's been designed for our existence, it's been z- designed to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short period of time. Because uh, that's another motivation for the book is to make the point. Uh, our best way to understand the record of nature is from a biblical, redemptive perspective.
0: And, and reading through your book, I haven't finished yet, but this seems to be a highly technical, detailed book with lots of charts, lots of uh, diagrams, lots, lots of math involved. Now, is your intended audience uh, one, that, one that's from a hi- highly scientific background, or who's, who's the intended audience for this book?
1: The intended audience is people who want to have their minds blown by what they see in the record of nature. And the book is designed so you can go as deep as you want. And so if you've got a PhD in science and you want to dig into all the details, you want to read all the papers, notice in the uh, back of the book, I actually give you links to all the research papers I cite so that the skeptic can actually check up and make sure that the claims I'm making are scientifically valid. On the other hand, if someone says, look, uh, I just want to know how great and wonderful the creation is. I mean, I had one of our employees who doesn't have a science background at all. And her comment was, every chapter is a mind blower. It's like I was just utterly amazed at the level of design I was seeing. And uh, she wasn't so interested in the scientific details, but she says, I couldn't escape the bottom line, just how wonderfully designed our universe is to make possible uh, the redemption of billions of human beings. So it's it's up to the reader how deep you want to go.
0: <laughs> well, and, and it is definitely deep, and I do not have a – certainly do not have anywhere near a scientific background, but I find the book intriguing, and, and I, it makes me want to learn more about – the latest scientific discoveries. I, I can tell you that much,
1: right? And I'm the book was edited to be completely equation-free, so no equations.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's definitely good for me. So, uh, y- you made a statement in the introduction to this book on video, and and the statement was the motive of the one who wields the blade makes all the difference. Can you go into a little bit more detail on that that phrase that you? Uh, well,
1: Staying you different. look out at, at the universe, and everywhere we look beyond Earth, we see conditions that are very hostile uh, for our existence. And it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who says, when you look out at, at the universe, it's out to kill us. It's just danger, danger everywhere. Uh, but that's kind of looking at it from uh, you know a negative perspective, from a positive perspective. Yes, everywhere we look, we see these hostile conditions. But everywhere we look, we see we need every bit of it to be exactly the way it is so we can exist on this one planet. And the whole idea that, you know, a God created two trillion galaxies where each galaxy has hundreds of billions of stars. So we could have one planet within this universe in which we could exist. How much does this creator care for us that he was willing to invest at that incredibly high level? And so... There, you get this sense of all oh, wow—the uh, Creator must care and value us human beings to a very high degree. Look at everything He did to make possible our existence.
0: And and one of the themes throughout that I see is is complexity. Certainly, the Creator caring for His creation, but also the complexity of the creation. Um, and it tells us a lot about the creator. I think that you mentioned that as well. So, if we have a complex universe, we must have a complex creator. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. I think you can extend that principle because, as an astronomer, as I look out at this vast universe, I see beauty everywhere. I see beauty in the equations of physics, I see beauty in the galaxies. Uh, you know, you look at our planet Earth, uh, the beauty is extraordinary. And then the elegance of it all, how elegantly the whole universe is uh, fabricated to make possible our existence. And this is revealing the attributes of the creator. It's a creator that enjoys beauty, who values elegance, uh, who enjoys complexity, and enjoys creating things so that it achieves multiple purposes, not just one or two purposes, but multiple purposes. And so, yeah, the deeper you dig, uh, the more it reveals the character attributes of the creator.
0: And that kind of reminds me of the beginning of Romans about uh, all men are without excuse because creation basically reveals God if you're searching for him. Uh, does the beginning right. of Romans tie in with this book in any way, in, in your opinion?
1: Very much so, because Romans says that uh, nature not only reveals the existence of God, it reveals all of his specific character attributes. So uh you know, it's not just a God, it's a specific God of the Bible. And you get some idea too in looking at the record of nature, what his purposes and intents are, uh, which actually reveals, okay, what is my purpose? What is my tent? What is my role within this vast universe?
0: And and you've talked about um that God gave us two books. Uh, can yes. you expand on that a little bit? And how does that tie in with the complexity of God's creation and how much he cares for us? Can you just explain a little bit about um, the two books of, of, of the, that basically God has given us?
1: Well, you, you mentioned Romans 1. I think more specifically you get it in Psalm 19, uh, where it tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. That's verse 1. And how God has written his words upon the heavens for all of us to read. And so Psalm 19 likens the universe, the record of nature as a book of revelation from God. And so God has revealed himself to us human beings through two utterly trustworthy and reliable books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And that's kind of the core mission of our organization Reasons to Believe, is to take the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture and into a relationship with their creator.
0: Yeah, and we'll definitely dive into more of the book in in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to kind of uh, take a detour. And uh, it's my understanding, Hugh, that you've recently stepped down from leadership at Reasons to Believe. Uh, Can you you fill us in a little bit about that and talk about your replacement?
1: Sure. Well, it's a change in leadership. It's an alteration. I'm still on the board of directors. I'm still full-time at Reasons to Believe, uh, but... We have built a succession plan into Reasons to Believe. Okay, we're building this uh, scholar community. We now have over 160 researchers in our scholar community. And we look at that community as a way to equip them to evangelize their peers, uh, to be equipped to evangelize people through the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture. And we look at that as our future pool of uh, staff uh, researchers And out of the pool, we're gonna develop the leaders for the organization. And so uh, I've recently uh, given the presidency over to our staff biochemist, Fazal Rana. He's been on our staff for more than 20 years. He's 17 years younger than I am. So uh, he's since July one, been the president. And our board of directors is basically exhorting me, hey, Hugh, uh, the organization is twice the size it was four years ago. it's, we, we need to have more people on board to manage the leadership. I'm concerned that Fazal Rana also had uh, significant amounts of his time protected for research and writing. But yeah, my plan is to devote more of my time to research, writing, and speaking.
0: I know that probably scared a lot of folks that you were suddenly disappearing from reasons to oh, believe, no, but apparently you're, you're still involved.
1: And, you know, we have a succession plan for all of our employees. I mean, this is kind of a core principle of reasons to believe. We all need to be raising up people uh, to take over. And uh, when they take over, we actually get to focus a little more on what we're really good at. I mean, my gift is not administration. And so uh, I'm really grateful that the board has set me free to focus on those things I think I'm best equipped to do.
0: Well, you're definitely gifted in a, in a tremendous amount of areas. God's gifted you in, in those uh, avenues, so, and we're certainly thankful for that. Um, I wanted to talk also and change gears once again. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a famous debate between, I think it was Bill Nye, the science guy, apparently, or so-called yes. science guy, and another Christian, and they were debating, I, I guess, the, the 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 existence of God. Does does God exist? And that's what that's what their their discussion was about. And I I felt that it lacked uh, really scientific foundations in the argument on both sides. And I know that you have stated in the past that um, I'm assuming the scholars at Reasons to Believe don't typically debate others without advanced degrees. And I was just thinking when I was watching that debate a number of years ago, either you or someone on your staff could have put forth a more scientific argument for the existence of god now have you guys thought about that differently because i think it would have been a great public relations uh coup basically to have one of your scholars or yourself on a debate like that even though the the, the bill I the science guy didn't ha- doesn't have advanced degrees have you changed your mind on that or have you thought about that further
1: well uh we're still reluctant to do debates with people that have advanced degrees for the simple reason when uh, you're debating someone that doesn't have an advanced degree, they have no reputation to defend. Uh, They're not being held accountable by their peers. And so I've been in debates like that, where, you know, the person I'm debating uh, just flat out lies about all kinds of things. And I, they know there's no consequences, Whereas if someone's got a doctoral degree and uh, they begin to misrepresent uh, their discipline, their peers are going to call them to account. And so, you typically have that uh, check on the debate and uh, but you know, I have debated people without advanced degrees and uh, you know, and also I want to be careful not to um, you know humiliate the person I'm debating. And so if I've got a doctoral degree uh, in astronomy and they try to take me on uh, without any background in physics and astronomy, I know it's not going to go uh, well for them. And so, I never want to be in a debate where you know one side gets humiliated, and uh, also I think it's important that we dialogue. My biggest complaint about the debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham, they were talking past one another. They really didn't engage, and so they needed a moderator that would actually help them stay on the topic so that they could engage one another. And even during the Q&A time, I didn't find them really engaging. Uh, Both of them had an agenda that they stuck to, and uh, so that's why I think it's better that we do those things in a dialogue format rather than a debate format, because in a dialogue format, you actually have some engagement of one another, and that typically takes a skilled moderator, Uh, but I've done debates where we haven't had a moderator, and it's gone well, too. It all depends on the the situation. So.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense uh, when you explain that. And and, and Hugh, isn't there a temptation among Christians to win the debate instead of win the person to the Lord? Is there a temptation to do that?
1: Very much so. Uh, Whenever I'm involved in a dialogue or a debate, my focus is on the person I'm engaging. Uh, You know, yes, there's an audience, but focus on the person you're engaging. Because if you win that person over, you're going to win over the audience. Uh, But you know, if you, if you don't, it's, it's just not going to go as well. And so I encourage our staff people, hey, if you're in a debate or a dialogue, focus on the person uh, that you're engaging. And I like to talk to them before the debate and after the debate, try to get to know them a little bit, uh, try to put them at ease. Because uh, the more comfortable the dialogue, the better it's going to be for the audience.
0: Well, that shows that shows, I I think, the heart of Christ there instead of just trying to our fleshly pattern is to to win the argument at all costs. So so thank you so much for that, that advice there. Um, Hugh, I think the last time I I spoke with you, the James Webb telescope had recently been launched uh, from the launch pad there. Uh, What are some and I'm curious, I think you mentioned that it would take about six months or so to to really get back the images and digest and and, and see the images from the James Webb telescope, what have they discovered? And, and from your viewpoint, what excites you about some of the images that we're seeing?
1: Well, I've been posting a lot of the uh, images on my Facebook and Twitter pages, and I wrote an article that's posted at reasons.org about what we've learned uh, from the initial images. And uh, it's an infrared telescope, uh, which means it's ideally suited uh, for exploring the early history of the universe. Because the farther away you look, uh, the more towards the red end of the spectrum the radiation from stars and galaxies has shifted. And so they purposely made the James Webb Space Telescope an infrared telescope so that they could uh, get that picture of the early universe. That's one of his primary missions to learn about the, the very first stars that formed in the universe and the first galaxies how they form, and uh, what the statistics are, how big the stars are that that are first forming. Uh, That stuff uh, is going to take a few years before we really get some idea. Uh, But already uh, we're seeing just how powerful this telescope is in showing us the galaxies in the early history of the universe, Uh, and recognizing that like our Milky Way galaxy, a lot of them form quite quickly. And uh, we're seeing that there are significant numbers of disk galaxies. And, uh, you know, we already have found some of the firstborn stars even before the James Webb Space Telescope. But they're small mass stars that take tens of millions of years to form, which means they get polluted uh, by the ashes from the really big firstborn stars. And the mission of the James Webb is to, to actually try to discern what are the really big firstborn stars. And so uh, it's not totally uh, evident yet that the James Webb is powerful enough to give us all the information we want on those very firstborn stars, but it's going to tell us a whole lot more than we know right now. And it's also going to be used to try to look at the chemistry of the atmospheres of planets beyond our solar system. Some data like on that has already come back.
0: Yeah, and and it's my understanding. I was looking at some of the comparisons between the Hubble and the James Webb, and it's the clarity is 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 tremendous with the James Webb. And and I think you had stated that um, the James Webb is able to see through maybe with infrared technology the the cloud dust and see what the actual stars look like. Is that correct?
1: Well, I. In the infrared part of the spectrum is where dust tends to glow uh, quite brightly. So, for example, I just posted an image of the discovery of two significant rings around the planet Neptune that was picked up by the James Webb Space Telescope just a few days ago. And, uh, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope wasn't able to see that because it was looking at optical wavelengths. But because the James Webb is an infrared telescope, it was able to pick up uh, those dusty rings around the, the planet Neptune. Likewise, it's able to detect dust in the galaxies uh, to a degree that's not possible uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope. And several of those images have already been released.
0: Well, they're, they're amazing images. And and, and, I can, and I'm assuming we're too, the first people right? in human history to, to see those images uh, with that type of clarity. Um, now, right after the images started coming out, there was some discussion on message boards that uh, the James Webb Telescope images were disproving the, I think, the Big Bang theory. Is that correct? There was some, there was some well, chatter about that. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it all comes from a uh, plasma physicist, Eric Lerner. I actually debated him on the radio uh, a, few, a long time ago. And you'll see a couple of pages about Eric Lerner's ideas in my book, The Creator in the Cosmos, 4th edition. And uh, he's a fan of Hans Alvain, who won the Nobel Prize. And Hans was a famous plasma physicist who decades ago speculated that maybe the magnetic fields in galaxies and in between galaxies was strong enough that this could actually give us a different model of the universe. And Eric Lerner picked up on that and said, well, hey, if these magnetic fields are strong enough, uh, maybe uh, the gravity that gives us the Big Bang creation model may be incorrect. And Eric is not a uh, a believer. He's an atheist. And he recognized the challenge of Big Bang cosmology to his atheism. But what I've pointed out uh, in uh, the Crater in the Cosmos fourth edition, we now have measurements uh, the magnetic field strengths of galaxies, and the magnetic fields between galaxies. And uh, those magnetic fields are many, many orders of magnitude weaker than what's necessary to support Eric Lerner's ideas. Uh, but Lerner has looked at these James Webb Space Telescope and said, uh, images and says, look at all the early born galaxies. The Big Bang wouldn't predict that we would get this many disk galaxies forming early in the universe. Well, that's actually not correct. Uh, There's a whole family of Big Bang creation models. And many of those Big Bang creation models indeed do predict that we're going to get lots and lots of disk galaxies early uh, in the uh, universe. And so you'll find an article I posted at reasons.org where I go point by point Uh, at uh, some of Lerner's uh, recent statements and uh, basically demonstrate that the James Webb Space Telescope is actually giving us more evidence for the Big Bang creation model, not less evidence. Yeah, you'll see that posted at reasons.org.
0: Absolutely. And I'll post all of those links below the video um, to those resources as well. Um, and I don't mean to get off track here, uh, but uh, the Big Bang theory. I know a lot of, and we've got new listeners all the time, and maybe this is the first time that they've heard a Christian can believe in the Big Bang theory, and and still be a Christian. I know there's 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 debate, there's sometimes unneeded controversy in the in the in the secondary issues of the Christian faith, and and folks criticize you uh, because you do believe that God created the universe through the Big Bang. And uh, I I don't mean to take up any uh, more time than we need to go to go on this, but you actually believe in the Big Bang theory, and you believe that's how God created the universe. Is that correct?
1: Well, was actually a factor in my coming to faith in Jesus Christ was as a young student of astronomy, realizing, hey, it looks like the evidence is heavily favoring the Big Bang uh, model. And if it's Big Bang, the universe must have a beginning if there's a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. I want to find that cosmic beginner. And it took me a couple of years, but uh, that's how I became a follower of Jesus Christ, is realizing the Bible is the one, uh, religious text we have that actually is consistent with what we're discovering about the universe. Now, I, what I discovered later is that the primary reason why a number of Christians see the big bang, uh, creation model as a threat, Uh, to their beliefs, is that the Big Bang creation model tells us that the beginning is 13.79 billion years in the past. And because they interpret the first page of the Bible as God creating with six consecutive 24-hour periods, they say, hey, uh, my understanding of Genesis is that the universe is only thousands of years old. Big Bang cosmology says it's billions of years old. Well, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but when I first picked up the Bible and looked at Genesis chapter 1, it was clear to me almost immediately that these creation days had to be six consecutive long periods of time. You've got an evening morning phrase for the first six days, but there is no evening morning phrase for day seven. And whatever that evening morning phrase means at a minimum, it's telling us each of these creation days has a definite start time, and a definite end time. So the lack of an evening morning phrase for day seven tells me we're still in the seventh day. And both Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 explicitly state, we're still in God's seventh day. So, uh, and I also want to share that, you know, my peers in astronomy, when the Big Bang model began to garner all the observational evidence that it did, whether they were atheists or theists, they recognize uh, that if it's Big Bang, this is basically sustaining the biblical teaching about the universe. And uh, you know, people who didn't like the Christian faith were saying, we got to get rid of this cosmic beginning. We can't have this. And they did everything they could to try to reinterpret the data to get rid of the beginning. And also there are those who are saying, well, we have a beginning here that we have to accept. But we've got to get rid of these billions of years. It's not enough time to sustain a naturalistic uh, origin and history of life. And so they were pushing for quadrillions of years. But as I share with a lot of my Christian friends, that debate in the 20th century, uh, the young universe Christians won. It's only billions of years old. And yes, if it's only billions, there's no way you're going to be able to sustain a naturalistic interpretation, a verse uh, of the history and origin of life on Earth.
0: Very well, very well stated. Um, a- a- another topic I wanted to talk about I-, I think in the last interview, you talked about um, maybe the desire for another uh, moon mission, or maybe in one of your books in the past or one of your videos, uh, you-, you stated that we should go back to the moon again. Right. Well, it looks like that may be a soon possibility of that type of thing happening. Uh, what do you expect from another moon mission? Do you, do you expect any, any scientific discoveries or, or is it just public relations?
1: Well, years ago, I, met, I had an opportunity to speak to the scientists and the astronauts at uh, NASA Houston and basically said, you know, with the Apollo mission, our goal was to recover pristine lunar rocks. And we did that. We learned a lot about the uh, st- interior structure and history of the moon as a result but we know that there's at least uh 20,000 kilograms of earth soil on every 100 square kilometers of the moon's surface because i mean every time the earth gets bombarded with big meteorites a lot of earth soil gets exported to interplanetary space and the easiest place to find that earth transported soil is on the surface of the moon it's on mars as well but on mars you only got 200 kilograms not 20,000 kilograms for 100 square kilometers. And, you know, we've been trying to find the fossils of Earth's first life here on planet Earth. The problem is, Earth is so geologically active, uh, those early fossils have been destroyed. But the Moon has almost no geological activity. The fossils of Earth's first life are present in pristine form on the Moon. So the the talk I gave at NASA Houston is, Let's go back to the moon with a different mission to find the Earth-transported soil and uh, you know, analyze that soil, discover the fossils of Earth's first life, and see who got the origin of life model right, the theists or the non-theists. They have very different ideas of what those fossils will look like, and I told everybody there, uh, this is something every American taxpayer would support, because the last time I checked the American taxpayer base, was 100% composed of theists and non-theists. And so everybody should be excited about NASA uh, resolving that debate.
0: So it's my understanding if they find elements of life on the moon, then those elements of life came from Earth. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, we're talking about the remains of Earth life. Um, And yes, the bombardment was heavier on the Earth at the time of life's origin. And so I think we've got an excellent chance of finding the fossils of Earth's first life on the surface of the moon. And uh, we don't need to send people. This all could be done with machines. So it's not a high-cost thing, and it's not just limited to NASA. Uh, The Chinese and the Israelis, for example, are both committed to send missions to the moon. So I'm hopeful that uh, we're actually going to have an answer as to who got the Origin of Life model right. I guess
0: we'll have to... Wait and see on the, uh, the archeolo- ar- archaeological digs p- possibility on the, on the moon there. But that's, that's exciting. Uh, Mr. Ross, getting back to your book, uh, one, in one of your chapters, you've got the title, A Galaxy Like No Other. And I'm going to quote you here. It says, as all Star Wars fans know, each movie that, beg- that belongs to the franchise begins with this opening scrawl. It says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, astronomers have a big problem with this opening. They have looked at galaxies far, far away, and not one of them possessed the Milky Way galaxy's characteristics favorable to complex life. So if we look back with their with telescopes in a galaxy far, far away, why isn't that compatible with life? Why do we have to be at this time in history to have life?
1: Well, that chapter in Design to the Core basically describes all the different features of a spiral galaxy that must be fine-tuned in order to make possible the existence of advanced life within that galaxy. I mean, it has to be a spiral galaxy. Uh, Otherwise, the stars are going to be too close together. um, And you're going to be exposed to deadly radiation. And uh, the spiral arms have to be symmetrical, they have to be a certain distance apart. You don't want a lot of spurs and feathers between the arms. And you want the spiral galaxy to be big enough that it's not going to be gravitationally disturbed by nearby galaxies, but not so big that it's going to have a huge supermassive black hole pouring out deadly radiation. And uh, that's just a few, uh, many more dozens of characteristics that must be fine-tuned. And... uh, What we're discovering is that our Milky Way galaxy indeed is the right size. It's a little more than a trillion times the mass of our star the sun, but it has an extraordinarily small supermassive black hole. Uh, It's about 40 times smaller than what we'd expect for a galaxy of its size. Moreover, right now, what I mean by right now is the last million years, our supermassive black hole has been extremely quiet. It's been on a starvation diet is pulling in very little mass. And because of that, there's no deadly radiation coming out in the center of our galaxy. So, uh, and then it's got the right partners. I mean, our local group of galaxies has got no giant galaxies in it. Our local group is well-spaced from uh, adjoining uh, groups of galaxies. And so we're in the safest spot uh, within the Virgo cluster for advanced life uh, to be possible. And yeah, I got up uh, in that chapter, I show you about uh, a dozen galaxies that come the closest to matching our Milky Way galaxy's features. And you can tell just by eyeballing it, you don't have to be an astronomer to realize these galaxies that come the closest to matching our Milky Way galaxy are nothing like our Milky Way galaxy. Our Milky Way galaxy really is unique. And that's kind of a theme you see throughout the book. We've been searching for 70 years trying to find a star that's sufficiently like the Sun, that it could be a candidate to have a planet orbiting it and which advanced life is possible. And we find many stars that are twins of one another, but we've yet to find an adequate twin of the Sun. And uh, you can do that with basically every cosmic feature. Uh, You know, the one we're in stands out from all the rest.
0: So, Hugh, does it look like, and I think you've stated this in the past, uh, does it look like that humanity is it for this for this cosmos, for this universe, that God created the entire universe just to bring humanity about? Is that, is that possible? Do you see that?
1: Well, it is true that we need the universe to be precisely the mass that it is, the size that it is, and the age that it is in order to have one planet in the entire universe in which humans or the equivalent of humans can exist. So none of it is wasted. We need all of it just to have one place. And uh, it's possible that God could have created another one or three or four or a dozen or a million, but everywhere we astronomers look beyond planet Earth, we see conditions that are hostile for advanced life. So it looks like we indeed are alone within the universe. And there've been papers published by other astronomers making the point that it takes a minimum time, uh, given the laws of physics, for advanced life to appear on the cosmic scene, and we're here at that minimum time. So they're basically speculating, maybe after us, uh, there could be other intelligent uh, civilizations, but not before. We're the first ones on the scene.
0: Well, and and just, just as a novice of trying to Take this in and observe God's creation in that sense. It shows me the the love, the the creativity, the caretaking of humanity the, 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 that the creator of the universe has for humanity and, and his redemption plan. So that that looks like good news to me. Uh, well, now, that's
1: what really strikes me, too. So, yeah, I mean, and that's what people th- tell me they get from the book design to the core. They walk away with a sense, Wow. Uh, this God must care for us a great deal. He must have a very high purpose, not just for humanity, but for each of us, because he made each of us different. He gave each of us a different purpose.
0: Different purpose, yeah. And uh, I just, I see the love of God there. Uh, yes, very the, much. The creativity of God in his creation. I know that in chapters 9, 10, and 13, you talk about our sun and our solar system's uniqueness Uh among the detectable ones that we've discovered so far, as well as the moon. Can you go into right. a little bit more detail, uh, speaking in our, our solar system, to the, cre- the uniqueness of our sun, the uniqueness of our planet, our moon? Uh, can you tie that in all together for us? please?
1: Sure. Well, it was back in 1995 that astronomers found the first planets uh, orbiting uh, stars like our sun uh, that are still converting hydrogen into helium in their nuclear furnaces, And at that time, they were saying we're going to find hundreds, if not thousands, of planets outside of our solar system. And when we do, we're going to find many, many that are just like the planets in our solar system. Well, here we are in 2022. uh, The list of uh, discovered and measured uh, planets outside of our solar system now stands above 5,000. And of all those 5,000 plus, not a single one. As like any of the planets in our solar system. Not only have we not found a twin of the Earth, we haven't found a twin of Mercury, or Venus, or Mars, or Uranus, Neptune, Jupiter. And it's led to the discovery that every one of the eight planets in our solar system must be highly fine-tuned so that advanced life is possible on Earth. And so it's not just that we need to have the Earth the way it is, literally the entire solar system Every planet must be exactly the way it is for us to be able to exist and thrive on planet Earth. And that's even true of the five asteroid and comet belts. We're now finding asteroid and comet belts around other planetary systems. But it's revealing just how special the ones are in our solar system. Because 80% of the stars we look at have no asteroids or comets at all. And we know why. Uh, their gas giant planets migrate in too closely to their host stars and basically eradicate all the asteroid and comet belts. But those that don't move in like that, uh, we discover that those stars have asteroid and comet belts a thousand times bigger than ours. And uh, we have five asteroid and comet belts where we get just the right delivery of asteroid and comets Not so many that it would destroy our civilization, but not so few that we don't get any replacement of the water we lose. And we get the delivery of a valuable, heavy elements we need to sustain our civilization. And so, again, even the asteroid and comet belts are unique.
0: I'm curious, Hugh, uh, the beginning when you started writing this book until the time (laughs) that you finished, did it increase your faith? Well, very much new though, discoveries? I mean, I probably had more
1: fun writing this book than any other book I've written because I'd be reading the scientific literature and said, oh, I've got to rewrite this chapter. This is really exciting material. And so uh, my mind was being blown as I was reading the literature, preparing content for the book. And to me, the big challenge is, OK, what do I not include in the book? I mean, I don't want I didn't want the book to get too thick but saying, hey, you know, I need to kind of select those things. I think lay people are going to most appreciate uh, reveals to them, just how amazingly designed at every cosmic scale level uh, the universe is to make our existence possible.
0: Well, you talk about a lay person reading the book, and that's certainly me. And I, I can I can relate to the audience here. Um if you're a layperson like me, you have basically no scientific background whatsoever. You can make it through this book, and you can say, wow, and your mind will get blown chapter after chapter after chapter. So I highly recommend the book, and we'll provide the links below the video. But uh, it, it's it's certainly an a eye-opening, astounding book, and I'm learning things that I, I never thought possible. So uh, long story short, if I can get through it, you can get through it, and you can be amazed as well.
1: Well, it's also wonderful things to share with your friends. Hey, you won't believe what I just read. That kind of thing.
0: <laughs> a- absolutely, I'll certainly do that. Um, Hugh, I'd like to change gears once again, and, and uh, I'd like to talk about um, you've got a you've got a partner, you've got a, a wife uh, as well. And I have to to ask some questions. Tell us about your wife. I know she's an integral part of your ministry, and just. Just highlight her a little bit. Uh, how has she helped you over the years? What, do, how, how does she support you? And and uh, highlight her just a little bit more, please.
1: Well, she's radically different from me. I mean, we're both committed followers of Jesus Christ, uh, but uh, you know, I'm on the autistic spectrum, and uh, she's uh, you know very sensitive to people's emotions and feelings, and uh, she's very expressive. I mean, she's an English professor by background, and so. Uh, And we've been married 45 years, and I can tell you, I feel like I'm still just getting the tip of the iceberg of what my wife is all about. Uh, I've never had a boring moment with her. I'm always discovering things about her that I didn't know before. And I think she feels the same way about me. And so, and I think that's the way we're supposed to be as, uh, you know, men and women, uh, part of the human race. Uh, You know, we have a lot to explore. Not just this wonderful universe, but look at all the individuals God has put around us. And so, uh, but I see her as one that complements my communication. So she understands my strengths, my weaknesses. And so uh, she edits all my books and tries to make sure. I mean, a lot of our staff refer to her as my translator. Takes my scientific stuff and translates it in such a way that people, regardless of scientific background, can really appreciate what they're reading.
0: Well, just the way that, that uh, you've talked about her in the past, you definitely compliment one another, and it's definitely a God's gift to you and your God's well, gift to she's her as well. Well, me it's how obvious. to
1: engage people. I mean, when I first met her, I, I, I would just stare at the floor. I wouldn't look at people. And she was the one that says, I think people pay more attention to you if you actually look at them. So uh, uh, she's, she's been equipping me how to engage people that are not on the spectrum.
0: Well, uh, she's done a done a very good job, so you've definitely got to—God's blessed you in that area as well. Uh, Hugh, I'd li- also like to uh, discuss another topic, um, the coming kingdom, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. It talks about, uh, certainly in the scriptures in the book of Revelation as well. Now, there are those Christians that think that the, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem will basically be a refurbished Garden of Eden. I think you have a different take on that. Is that correct?
1: I do. I look at Christianity as standing apart from the other religions of the world and that it's a two creation model where God creates his universe as a tool in his hands to eradicate evil and suffering. It explains why he set it up with thermodynamics, gravity and electromagnetism. Uh, Those are crucial tools uh, for the eradication of evil. But once evil has been completely eradicated, the universe will have fulfilled its purpose. God will no longer have a need for it, as he spoke it into existence, I believe he'll speak it out of existence and replace it with a brand new creation, the one that's described in Revelation 21 and 22. And when we look at those last two chapters of the Bible, we see that the new creation is not going to have thermodynamics, it's not going to have gravity or electromagnetism, it's going to have completely different laws of physics, and I believe different dimensions, Uh, Because it tells us it's a place where we're not going to be married. We're not going to be in families. And I think that's because we're not going to be constrained to linear time anymore. And we're going to be delivered from linear time into geometric time, which is going to make our relationships far more fulfilling and uh, loving. And you say, well, why doesn't God give us that now? If he did, evil would run out of control. So temporarily, he constrains us to a single dimension of time that can't be stopped to reverse. He constrains us to thermodynamics, electromagnetism, and the gravity. And so, as it tells us in uh, John 16, 33, in this world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have thermodynamics and gravity and electromagnetism, but take heart, of overcome the world. So we're going to be taken into a brand new uh, creation where nothing will die, nothing will decay, uh, and there will be light, but it's going to be a place without shadows or darkness. It's not going to be electromagnetic uh, radiation. And, uh, you know, uh, as it tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, everything within this universe is in a process of ongoing decay. We're going to be delivered from that. So it's not going to be God restoring our planet Earth, because if he did, there'd still be ongoing decay. He's going to deliver us completely. Uh, from the laws of physics and this universe,
0: yeah. And and um, my question is, with those new laws of physics, and I, I realize we're we're speculating here, but you know, the 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 post resurrection of Jesus, where he was able to walk through walls, he was able to to appear at different places at different times or at the same time, was he <laughs> foreshadowing that? Do you think the new laws of physics that we're going to be under? Um, because Paul said we're going to have a body like Jesus. Does that have it? Does that tie in at any? At any point, do you think?
1: Yes, and uh, Paul deals with that in First Corinthians 15. He talks about the new bodies we're going to receive, and how they'll be incorruptible, indestructible, and uh, so uh, they're not going to decay. Uh, I'm not going to have to, you know, lose my hair. My hair is going to go gray. Uh, you know, bags under my eyes, all that—that's uh, going to be gone. So, uh, and. I think it's going to be wonderful, too. Whatever we create will not need to be maintained. I mean, no matter what we make here on Earth, it takes maintenance. I mean, you build a house, you've got to maintain it because the laws of physics are going to cause it to wear down. Uh, but a new creation, uh, we're going to be able to create without having to worry about maintenance.
0: And along those lines, along that theme, I guess, the, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ, I've, I've heard you state a couple of times that um, I, I, th- I think in, in Matthew, Matthew 24, I, I believe, um, you know, Jesus speaks about the gospel of the kingdom will be, pre- and I'm paraphrasing, the gospel will be preached to all men and then the end will come. And there's a lot of speculation these days about the second coming of Christ, Uh, If there's going to be a tribulation period, if there's going to be a rapture and all of that, all of that stuff. But I think I heard you state a a couple of times that you believe in that passage in Matthew 24, that the gospel has to be preached to all to all tribes or nations before the end will come. Uh, Do you think we're we're close to that?
1: Well, yes. I mean, uh, as I speak in my church, it's like all these people are waiting for the Lord to return. I think a a different perspective is to say the Lord is waiting for us to finish the task that he gave us. He promised that he would come back at the moment that we take the good news of salvation to all the people groups of the world, making substantial numbers of people, all uh, people groups, disciples of Jesus Christ. And uh, so once we do that, he's coming back. And so we can speed the return of Christ simply by getting on with finishing that task. And something i put in my book, Improbable Planet, is some indication of how close we are to completing that task. Because Jesus made it clear, and you see it in the book of Zechariah, that we're not looking at a majority of human beings becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, but we are looking at a very large minority, something on the order of a quarter to a third of a people in every people group on the planet becoming faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the statistics of the past 2,000 years, I argue we're getting close. So, uh, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Ralph Winter, he passed away, but he founded the U.S. Center for World Mission. And he said, rather than counting the number of Christians, let's count the number of Christians that are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission bringing people and all people groups uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. He says at the beginning of the 20th century, that percentage was 2%. And uh, when he passed away, the percentage worldwide uh, was about 11 to 14%. Uh, it's now around 16 to 17%. And so I love what he wrote. He says, well, right now, evangelical Christians have the financial resources, the people, And the technology to take the good news of salvation to all the people groups of the world, fulfilling the Great Commission, we can do it in a single decade. All we lack is a motivation. In fact, he wrote a paper, Ralph Winter, saying if we can get all evangelicals worldwide uh, to commit to give 1% of their income to fulfilling the Great Commission, uh, the job can be done in a decade. The problem is worldwide, that percentage is only a tenth of a percent. And so he says, well, all we need to do is get everybody to step up uh, by a factor of 10. But it said, wait a minute, uh, Ralph, the vast majority of evangelicals worldwide give zero. Uh, multiplying that by 10 is still zero. And uh, getting all those people that are committed, they're typically already giving it 3 to 8% of their income. Challenging them to multiply that by 10 is not realistic. We have to find some way of motivating the people that are at the zero level to step up uh, to a significant level. And uh, the statistic that shocks me most of all is one just put up by Barna. Uh, Only 5% of American evangelicals who attend church on a weekly basis have shared their Christian faith uh, with an adult over the past year. That number 40 years ago was 20%. It's now only 5%. And the command in First Peter 3.15 is 100%. It says, we're all to be ready uh, to share good reasons for faith and hope in Jesus Christ with gentleness and respect. And when I survey people in churches about why they're not sharing their faith, the number one reason I get is, I don't have good reasons which is the mission of Reasons to Believe. We're committed to give you those good reasons because we want to take away that excuse.
0: Well, you've definitely given great encouragement to the, to the body of Christ, and, and Reasons.org is, to place, is, is a place, certainly, to find good reasons to defend your Christian faith. And also Design to the Core is as as another great resource to prepare us to defend our faith and not a defense is, is, you know, the propagation or the uh, out of love sharing our faith with those who don't know the Lord. But I highly encourage this book as well. And so Hugh, you've given encouragement to the church. What about those who don't know the Lord and they're looking around us, whether they're of a scientific mindset or just a layman and they see the world getting darker and darker and they see truth being substituted for evil or darkness being substituted for light in our society today. What encouragement is there? What hope is out there for those who are who are despairing of life, who don't have hope in the current world, uh, this dark world? They they don't see they don't see sustenance. They don't see truth. They don't see eternal life and the things of the world. What encouragement would you give them?
1: Well, I would tell them, uh, you know, what do you expect? I mean, uh, this universe was created by God. God is opposed by evil, supernatural beings, and so don't expect politics to make sense. Uh, You know, don't expect people to behave in a truthful, rational way. As it tells us in the Bible, we do not wrestle just with flesh and blood. We wrestle with these beings that are beyond the universe, and uh, therefore we shouldn't be surprised uh, that these beings are attacking the Christian church and making Christians behave in completely irrational ways. And making politicians behave in completely irrational ways counter to their best interests. And so don't be frustrated by the lack of reason that you see out there. This is what you'd expect uh, given the cosmic battle that's going on between good and evil. Uh, But realize there is hope. The hope does not rest in this world, it's in the world to come. And so just giving them the evidence. And so that was my motivation for writing Design to the Core uh, and writing books like, uh, you know, Weathering Climate Change. Uh, you know, that's a topic where you see all kinds of irrational behavior going on, but saying, hey, look at the design behind this. Uh, and doesn't this tell us that there's someone behind all of this that's got some very good, valuable, loving purposes? And look at that and realize, well, maybe there is something here I haven't been paying attention to. And so, uh, and... You know, one of the things about books is you can leave them lying around and people will pick them up and begin to look at it. And they get surprised by what they see and a glimmer of hope begins to appear there. But that means we need to be available for dialogue. So it's not enough just to give somebody a book. You need to be available to follow up and say, hey, uh, let's talk about what, it, what intrigued you here.
0: Definitely encouragement to us as, as the body of Christ um, Hugh, what's next on your agenda? You've just finished with this book. I'm sure you're going to go and speak about the book as well. You're going to do interviews designed to the core. But do you have any plans for a next book? What, what, what's on your agenda?
1: Oh, I've already got another book that's in, in our editorial department that uh, my wife is editing it uh, right now. It's a book called Dual Revelation, where I talk about the book of nature and the book of Scripture and how God designed each of those books to cooperate one another, to sustain one another. And basically an ex- exhortation, how we can use these two books to live our lives in the way that God wants us to live our lives. And to use them in a way to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm now working on a book on uh, the flood of Genesis. Uh, I've written a little bit about that already, but uh, people say, hey, Hugh, this deserves a full length book. Uh, one reason I stepped down from being the president of Reasons to Believe is so that I can devote more time uh, to writing books and uh, research articles. We're now getting published in the peer-reviewed uh, literature, so trying to uh, do a lot more of that because that's where the unbelievers are. And, uh, you know, get them to, to read material there and maybe use that as a gateway to get them looking at our books.
0: Well, I can't wait for those books to come out, especially about the, the flood story as well. Uh, that's fascinating to me, especially your, your take on it from a, a scientific uh, background as well. Now, all of these links will be below the video. Uh, you can certainly go to reasons.org and, and purchase all of these materials or just look at the numerous um, articles that they have on Reasons to Believe ministry website as well. But I'll provide the links below. Hugh, is there anything else you want to add about Design to the Core?
1: Well, uh, what I've been doing is sharing this book with uh, my fellow scientists who are not believers. They don't believe in God, but just saying, this is an example of doing scientific research from a biblical redemptive perspective. And, uh, you know, I know you're not a believer, but if you will just begin to do your scientific research uh, from a biblical redemptive uh, perspective, uh, I think it's going to make you a more successful scientist and my goal is that as they're becoming more successful in making scientific discoveries they'll come to the recognition maybe there's something to this biblical redemptive perspective that i need to investigate so uh that's kind of where i want people to come away with it's not just design so that you can thrive here on planet earth uh the whole universe and all of its subcomponents have been exquisitely and designed in detail not only to make your existence possible, but so that you can fulfill your eternal destiny uh, in your short life here on planet earth. And so dig into this, find out what the purpose of humanity is, the purpose of the universe and your individual role within it, and how you can use these uh, resources as a way to bring other people to faith in Jesus Christ.
0: And Dr. Hugh Ross, thank you so much for that wisdom. I'm gonna ask you to hang on for just a couple of minutes after the interview. But Dr. Hugh Ross with Reasons to Believe, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your book, Designed to the Core.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And until next time.